Revealing Voices is a mental health podcast that is faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. Host Tony Roberts and guest hosts with lived experience take you on a journey of revealing voices, working for justice, crying out for healing, speaking the truth in love, and expressing beauty in art. I'm Kevin Early Bird Early, technical producer and sound mixer, and I want to welcome you to Revealing Voices. Hello, I'm Tony Roberts with Revealing Voices, and once again, my co-host. Laura Pagliano. Hi, Tony. (laughs) Great to see you again. Glad you could be aboard. And our guest tonight is... Janet Hayes. Janet is uh, wears two hats. The one on the screen that you see is is her um, work in New Orleans, Healing Minds NOLA, and we're going to hear more about that. We're also going to hear more about work that she inherited with mentalillnesspolicy.org. So thanks for coming on board, Janet. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you both. Even though our viewer, your listeners won't be able to see us, but I can see you guys and it's really good to see you. So Janet, you are a tireless advocate for those with serious mental illness. What first inspired you to such advocacy? So, I mean, really for me, it's always been a justice issue. You know, I began, I mean, even, even when I was a kid, for some reason, I think I inherited the justice advocacy gene. Uh, for no rhyme or reason, people always tell me and have told me my whole life, that I'm a natural advocate because no matter what I've ever done in my life, whether it be music or, you know, restaurant work or, you know, now mental, mental illness, I advocate wherever I go to create equity and uh, reduce discrimination anywhere I find it. So for what, I don't know why I'm like that. I just was born that way. And after, so in New Orleans, after Hurricane Katrina, um, we saw the closure of our largest public hospital, charity hospital, that was part of a network of charity hospitals that served the indigent. And we had essentially federal reimbursement money through disproportional share dollars that paid, it was really unlimited, uncapped dollars to reimburse these hospitals for treatment and care for patients. And uh, and our, our hospital in New Orleans had almost 200, a little more than 200 psychiatric beds, 128 long-term psychiatric and 50 crisis stabilization. But even then they were using other beds in the hospital for psych patients because there was just so much de- demand for that. After Hurricane Katrina, the hospital closed and we basically caught up to the rest of the country overnight in seeing an uptick of people with serious mental illnesses being channeled into the criminal justice system and homelessness. And, th- and there was a lot of uh, sort of, I will say nefarious activity that was behind the closure of that hospital that resulted in a lot of death and, and tragedy and, and damage to people's lives. We had, you know, I was with a group of people that had tr- were, tr- were fighting against that and we, we weren't able to keep the hospital open. And, you know, I guess I still have a bone to pick with the state and the entity at Louisiana State University, which has gotten better now, but at the time they were responsible for closing that hospital to get them to restore what was lost. And in doing that, I guess this kind of segues into your next question, but I learned a lot about what kinds of programs, services, supports are needed to help people with serious mental illness and in particular untreated serious mental illness due to lack of insight and how to pay for it. 
um, or how, you know, and the barriers that exist to, that, that prevent us from, from being able to pay for it. So that's basically how I got involved. You know, for me, it's been a fight. I like to fight. I guess I'm always, I'm always better when I'm fighting, you know, I'm not as, <laughs> good, not as good when I'm winning, when I'm on the losing side, I say, I, I kind of, you know, I come alive and I guess I like to fight. Uh, when I'm winning, I, I, I quiet down a little bit, but, um, <laughs> but anyways, so also have had family members, but not as severely mentally ill as many of the people that I work with, but I, I've definitely come across serious mental illness in my own family. Um, I was going to say that you're unique in advocacy and you're not alone, but you are unique. Many people come to advocacy because they have an immediate family member that is suffering or neglected or jailed or dead or one of the homeless, one of the many poor outcomes. And it's a way that the loved one channels that frustration and also that desire to help the situation for their loved one and other people. And you don't have, you know, a child, for example, affected by this. And I'm bringing this up because I admire that so much. If every neighborhood had a Janet Hayes, <laughs> we literally somebody who doesn't have a super personal issue to solve for themselves, but just works on the injustice and the neglect and the discrimination for their own community. We would be so, so much farther ahead than we are with serious brain disorder advocacy. Thanks, Laura. Well, of course, the feeling is mutual because I have the same admiration for heroes like you and, and Tony and so many others who are directly impacted by untreated serious mental illness, who are physically and emotionally exhausted all the time, but still find it in them to make that call, you know, to a legislator or sign a letter or write an email or even tweet a tweet, you know, um, it's all like when you're exhausted, even doing the littlest things can be the most difficult. So I will say that. And, and also I will say that, you know, I don't have any family in the United States and I came to New Orleans on my own originally to work and I, I never intended to stay, but after Hurricane Katrina, I couldn't leave when there were so many people who I loved and who had become, my community became my family. So even though I don't have direct family members, the people in New Orleans who took me in essentially under, my, under their wing and kind of adopted me and said, hey, you're family now here, um, were, are the ones that really um, have suffered. And there's been, you know, I've seen a lot of death and injustice um, in this community for people who I do consider my extended family. So um, so I feel it. Um, but yeah, I don't have, I mean, I guess one of the luxuries that I have that a lot of people don't is I don't have an immediate family member that I need to look after, which gives me more time um, yes. to, to spend, you know, doing the, doing the advocacy work and, um, and all the, all that that entails. It's a lot. It's a lot. And you uh, identify in your website and healing minds, NOLA, the tagline of serious mental illness as a focus, creating alternatives to incarceration, homelessness, and death. That's a tall order. <laughs> have, you, have you seen some success with that? And where, where do you find hope? 
Yeah. And I would add to that, if I could update my website right now, which I probably should, uh, revolving hospital, revolving doors of, of uh, in acute psych hospitals, because that's another place that I think, you know, we see a lot of trauma, you know, the system, because it's so broken has really just created a lot of angry people, a lot of traumatized people, um, who aren't getting, you know, the, the real help that they need. And if they were, they might not be so systems resistant. So yeah, my work in New Orleans, I mean, and of course there's the national work, Healing Minds NOLA, I intended, when I first began the organization, it was around a project that I was doing here that was New Orleans based. And so that's how I came up with the name, but then in joining other advocates to push for provisions that were in the Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act back in, I mean, the bill I think was first introduced in 2013 by Representative Tim Murphy. And that's that's how I found out about DJ Jaffe and a lot of, and Laura, that's where we met in on Facebook and social media in doing, you know, in pushing for that, that those, you know, those that bill to pass to sort of mitigate um, the barriers in the system for people who need long-term uh, inpatient and outpatient treatment and care. They need that safety net. And so I think since I began, I have seen progress in my own community. I think the foundation for growth in that area has is really, it rests with our assisted outpatient treatment court. So one of the provisions in these Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act was allocation for funds for assisted outpatient treatment, which as you know, many people and probably your listeners know is civil court process that can compel people to adhere to their medications. And then we also we ensure that services are provided so they can be successful. And so back in 2016, some of the, so that was one provision in that bill that got passed in the 21st Century Cures Act and money was allocated. So in 2017, the Treatment Advocacy Center began a national education uh, series to work on helping counties and parishes to begin programs in, in, in states that have laws to begin programs and implement programs. So in Louisiana, so I, I did one of these seminars and, you know, it was like amazing. It, it was just so, I don't know, inspiring to be amongst like-minded people. And, you know, it's so hard to find friends in this area of advocacy because people are so uneducated about, you know, all the barriers and the policies and so on. And to be amongst a room full of like-minded folks where I didn't have to explain things, they just knew, and we could really get down to the nitty gritty and start discussing, you know, hardcore nuts and bolts of how do we do this? It was, it was really, I don't know, exciting isn't the word for it. It was just, you know, you're floating on air. I left that seminar just floating on air. It's like, we got to do this got to do this, you know? And so, so I came back to Louisiana and some of the folks who had gone to the seminar with me, we decided we were going to do a Louisiana specific education series and then to, to try to get, you know, programs implemented in parishes here. So that's basically how New Orleans began a program. And I was of course, instrumental in working to get a judge to support the idea. And so we're still working on, you know, really implementing that program in a way that we can serve more people. And it's been a struggle because obviously it's been problems. We didn't have any funding and there were problems in the law. So we had to amend the law. We had a couple legislative sessions where we had to go to you know, the legislature and change wording in the language and all of that. And so, but now we're doing great. And, and you know, I'm really seeing a difference in people that are getting into the program and under the judge's 
you know, supervision, they're really doing, I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing and heartwarming to see people's lives transform. And of course, you know, sometimes we really have to wrestle them into the program and it's just kind of fun to see the before and after because they're, you know, a lot of them are so angry when they first come into the program and afterwards so grateful. So anyway, so that is something that's changed. And in building this foundation for assisted outpatient treatment, it required collaboration and coordination amongst other agencies and entities, some of them that don't typically get along with one another. But something that I felt really strongly about when we started was grassroots planning, including all stakeholders. And I wasn't going to take no for an answer on that. There were some in the group that said, no, we need a smaller stakeholder planning group. And once we get, you know, the, um, you know, once we get the, the, the foundation of the court laid, then we'll go to our partners and we'll involve them in the planning. And I said, no, we're going to do this from the bottom up. We're going to have everyone at the table all together, including family members, you know, law enforcement, the business community, the providers, the lawyers, the criminal justice, everybody, you know, whoever and anybody who wants to come. It was all our meetings and still are open to the public. And I said, look, if my way doesn't work, then we'll do it your way. But we're going to do it my way first. So that's what we did. And we've never diverted from that. We've never veered off of that. And I think really... It's only it's one of the only things that's working in this city because it was collaborative uh, and not siloed with how to, things typically go. So that that collaboration is, you know, it carries on. Right. So it's now AOT today. But what about all of the things that AOT doesn't address? It's the same people, same stakeholders that, you know, need to be communicating about, OK, how where do we go from here to address other barriers, other gaps, long-term inpatient psychiatric stays, the HIPAA rules, residential treatment facilities, outpatient coordination, treatment and care, intensive IOP for, or sorry, mental health IOP for mental illness and substance use disorder. I mean, there's so much work that still needs to be done. And then the criminal justice system. So you have the community side of it, but then you have the criminal justice side of it. And, you know, so it it can get pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. I think that's one of the the hardest things about doing this work is educating legislators on or getting them to do the deep dive isn't easy and maybe not necessary, but it's, this stuff can be so complex and complicated. I think it can be really scary for a policymaker because they just don't know where to start. And I mean, who, who does, right? I mean, it's like, I wake up every day and it's like, well, what do I want to work on today? You know, the whole thing is a mess. <laughs> right. You know, a question about that, what the changes that you made in implementing AOT, is that just in the New Orleans parish? Have you been able to replicate your efforts outside of and parish means county relatively, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. So, but have have people approached you and said, oh, this is going well? And, or are you able to replicate it in, it in other counties or parishes? Yeah, there's a lot of interest in what we're doing. And there are a lot of folks, other parishes, surrounding parishes that would like to start programs. A lot of it is just having that, that person, you know, that point of contact who's, 
you know, who's not going to give up, right? That person who's determined is going to get everybody together and, and, and see it through and then to have the buy-in from all the other stakeholders. And of course, providers are busy and they're, they're, they're the natural go-to that want to start these programs or judges. And it's just, you know, finding the time and especially in Louisiana, there's always so much stuff going on that takes the wind out of the sails or, or takes the, the, it's not the right word, but it takes resources away from, time and resources away from stakeholders that would be the natural go-to to start AOT programs. So there has, but there is definitely a lot of interest. And I think other counties and other states are paying attention also, because one of the things that we did with our law and it's a problem across the country where you have, you know, the assisted outpatient treatment laws were really built or really sort of worded in a way that hospitals would be the primary referral source to the programs for patients who meet legal criteria, the le- that have legal eligibility. That means that they've been in and out of the hospitals, in and out of homelessness, in and out of the jails, because they have a history of treatment non-adherence. So they don't take their meds, right? They don't take their meds. So consequently, they're constantly revolving in and out of other expensive systems of care. And so in New Orleans and and, and other, other, well, I mean, it's state law. So in these state laws, if you don't get buy-in from the hospitals, then it's really hard to get people in your program. And so when we started, we had a few referrals from the hospital. We did a pilot and actually the two that we had did great. Um, you know, they'd had multiple hospitalizations before the program and none during the program. So, you know, the program essentially paid for itself, like just with those two clients and legislators paid attention to that and were willing to give us money because of that later on. But then the hospitals really stopped referring. Then COVID happened and, you know, everybody was on lockdown and, you know, just nothing happened for two years. Meanwhile, I'm getting calls like, oh, like Grand Central from family members. How do I get my loved one into your program? You know, um, they meet criteria and so on and so on. And so what I found is that the law, because of, I mean, there were like, it was a high bar to get people in because the law was saying, well, family member, you have to have the medical records for the person that you're petitioning for. If it's, you know, I mean, because of the HIPAA laws, most people, most families who are trying to petition for a loved one to be an involuntary outpatient treatment, which is the, you know, the, the assisted outpatient treatment is kind of the, the I guess, euphemism for that. Um, they're not going to share their medical records with the family member. So that's the first very well, sorry, family, you can't file a petition then even though you know your loved one meets legal criteria. It's extremely frustrating. And then in Louisiana, we also had, we had another little thing that most states don't have. And that is we had the law required written concurrence by the coroner with counsel that the individual meets legal criteria in order to file the petition. And that's because in Louisiana, unlike most states, our coroners are the go-to for filing orders of protective custody for persons in crisis to be able to get them transported to a hospital. That's interesting. It is. It's um. It's definitely got its benefits, and uh, some people complain about it, but it really does make sense um, in a lot of ways. But anyways, that's kind of neither here nor there because most of your listeners aren't even know. It's like it's that's a Louisiana specific issue that I'm happy to talk about with anyone that wants to talk about it further. But just having so so making that all of that happen just to file a petition was just, you know, we didn't get, I don't think we got one petition filed. And so we changed the law 
we took all that out. We took the whole thing out. We rewrote the entire law. We had a law review committee. We met, I think, once every two weeks or something like that for I don't know how many months. And we went through the law line by line and we 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 made it so that it was much more user-friendly for family members. So now if a family member wants to file a petition, all they have to do, they can file it pro se. They just write a petition saying, my loved one has a mental illness, they're 18 years or older. They are, have been in the revolving doors of jails, you know, hospitals, homelessness, because they don't take their meds and they would, you know, and, and AOT would be beneficial for them. They can file, they don't even have to have a social security number. They can file the petition on that alone. Petition gets filed. Then what happens is in order to get the evidence, the medical records that we need to know if the person meets legal criteria, we, the court, if they find probable cause can order a court-appointed psychiatrist to evaluate the individual. And that is how we get the evidence for the judge to execute the judgment to order the person into treatment. So, you know, it's a lot, right? And, you know, obviously we have to pay people. So we do have money now from the state to pay for those things. We also have an attorney who is a curator to the court who can represent the petitioner in the process if they don't have resources to pay an attorney. And I don't know that other, I mean, I'm not sure, but I don't know that other programs, you know, have those resources for family members. So we really, our, our program really is now catering mostly to families and we are loading up our program and people are doing great. I mean, not all of them, but most of them are, I mean, I have seen literally miracles happen. Some of the people that we had the least expectation for are really thriving. They're doing, they're doing the best. And it's just, you know, it, it's until you see it, until you see the black robe effect work, it's right. hard to believe that it could. And do I want to tell, do you yeah. want to tell our listeners what the black robe effect is? Sure. So the program, I mean, AOT really doesn't, I mean, there aren't any real like serious consequences to non for non-compliance in the AOT program. That means that it's civil. If somebody's not compliant with their treatment plan, we don't put them in jail. That would right. be, you know, an incentive, typically an incentive for people to stay in treatment. You know, there's no punishment, which is good. We don't want that, but there are consequences. And the consequences are that if someone's not compliant, then, you know, through the court process, they will, if they start to deteriorate, be put back in the hospital. And so that an incentive is a lot of people would rather go to jail than the hospital, to be honest. Yeah. If you tell them that if you don't take your meds, you know, we're going to, you're going to end up getting sick again. You're going back to the hospital. And we're, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to do that. We don't want to do that. Sometimes they'll just start taking their meds again. But what really makes the program work, the, the magic sauce or the secret sauce, so to speak, is all of us, no matter if we have a mental illness or not, when we go before a judge and they're wearing a black robe and we're standing there and they're telling us to do something. They have an authority that we typically comply with, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, any of us will do that. If I go to traffic court and stand in front of a judge to argue for argue a traffic ticket, mm -hmm. I know I'm shaking a little bit, you know, even though it's a traffic ticket. And I know I'm probably gonna be able to resolve my issue, but when I'm in front of a judge, I react a lot differently than if I'm in front of a doctor or, <laughs> or my parents, you know? Right. So, and also it is a court process. It's a serious thing. You know, this, these are laws, you know? And so 
we're impressing on the person. That's why we have people coming to court in person when we do AOT hearings, because we want them to feel the courtroom, right? We want them to feel that you're represented by your attorney mm. over here, but you're represented well. by their attorney over here. This is the judge. We, you know, and and we're following a law here, you know, and so, you know, and it, it's pretty amazing, and people actually really do respond pretty well. And then we also have a fabulous AOT judge, fabulous. I mean, he's um. So in our court, we don't have a specialty court. We have a specialty docket. So our judge was able to get all the other judges to agree to let him take all the AOT cases. I mean, wow. I think they were kind of happy to let him take all the yeah. But he did have, he went through a learning curve. He did the statewide um, symposium that we did with Treatment Advocacy Center. You know, he studies on his own. He, you know, he's worked really hard to learn about untreated serious mental illness and anosognosia and he, you know, the LEAP method. And, and so, and he's also, he used to be a family court judge, you know, and he's also, he's, a, he's older um, and he just has this demeanor about him. He's very calm, but he has a wisdom about him and wow. he's very kind, but he's authoritative. You know, if you don't do what he says, you'll hear about it. And so that helps a lot. Like to have a good judge is golden, you know? Yeah. You mentioned the collaboration that happens with Treatment Advocacy Center. Now that's uh, working on a national level, right? And uh, there was a convention in San Antonio, Texas that you just came home from. What did you discover there that would help advocates hearing this to have hope and laser focus as we move forward? Yeah, so the Treatment Advocacy Center Symposium was the National AOT Symposium. So it was focused all on assisted outpatient treatment. And I'm kind of a classic, you know, uh, an advocate who has basically taken this national formation and implemented it statewide and locally. Mm -hmm. Not quite statewide, although we've, I've done state work, but I wish I could get every parish in the state to implement a program. Right now, I'm busy implementing our, our, our own program. Once that's done, then I'll be in a better position to consult with other parishes. But the benefit, I mean, really, the, so the AOT Symposium is a national gathering. They've had it once before. I think the first one was in 2019. They tried to do it in 2020. Obviously, they couldn't because of COVID, and they didn't do it in 2021. But they bring, what they do is they bring stakeholders to, national stakeholders to the room. So you have your judges, you have your psychiatrists, you have your law enforcement, you know, you have your consumers and, you, you know, you have, so you have everybody in the room all talking about, um, you know, what's working and what isn't working in various states and then sort of national standardization thing. Like, so Treatment Advocacy Center is really, you know, they're kind of the go-to for AOT expertise. They work to help get AOT laws implemented in every state in the country. There are only three states that have not implemented laws or passed laws. And, you know, they still, they're still working on that, but they're more interested now in the states that have passed laws to help counties and parishes get programs implemented. And so the purpose of the seminar is to go and gather knowledge and information about what will work in your county, in your, in your parish. Only I know what's gonna work in my city, right? Or I mean, other people that are from New Orleans. And so, or in the state there, I was joined 
this year by a couple of colleagues also from Louisiana and the next door parish and they also have a program but they got funding for it from the SAMHSA grant we didn't get the funding but that's okay you know so we're going to listen so what what, what I'm listening for and what I'm benefiting from is the opportunity to you know mine people's brains for information that's going to help us improve our program down here based on their other their experiences so it's just a really great you know think tank for assisted outpatient treatment you know i highly recommend that if anybody's interested in starting a program in their city to go to the treatment advocacy center website treatmentadvocacycenter.org and they have a page that's just aot nothing else and it, it, it's a go-to, it's a, it's a blueprint, basically. It's a map on how to implement a program in your county. And they also provide um, technical assistance, free and free you know, assistance for implementing programs that I leaned on a lot. When we started the program in New Orleans, Treatment Advocacy Center, first of all, came down to New Orleans and yeah. um, actually Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to conduct a state-specific AOT training just for Louisiana. After that, they stayed engaged with us. And when we were doing the local program in New Orleans, joined us at a lot of our collaborative uh, stakeholder meetings, um, you know, to help refine efforts that we were already doing. But they're going to hear things that, you know, we might miss that are flags, right? And so in our conversations, they might jump in at the end and say, that's great, but you might want to consider, you know, this, or you might want to rethink that because in our experience, it, you know, it works better or not better this way. So, so I hide, so that is, you know, that was inspiring for me, first of all, and reassuring for me to know that they had my back, you know, the whole way through. Now for someone that wants to start a program, the best thing you can do is partner with a judge. Um, getting a judge to lead the initiative is powerful in a lot of ways. Just like I said, people listen to judges. If a judge calls a meeting, everybody comes. Now, if I call a meeting on my own, I might get a few people, but I'm not going to get all of the people who need to be at the table in order to move the ball to the, you know, to the goal line, you know. So I'm not, a, I'm not a sports expert. <laughs> Anyways, I hope I said that right. So, but I, I'll tell you what, to have partnered with Judge Reese, Kern Reese is the judge here in New Orleans, you know, so when we, when, when, when we were, we do activities, you know, we do think we do these things together. And so we have, we have facilitated our stakeholder meetings together since the first day. Wow. So, you know, and, and we got, that's how we got the city involved. We, you know, and I mean, our program's a little, it's pretty unique. New Orleans in general is a unique city. We're very innovative. We're entrepreneurial. We don't do, we don't do anything the same way anybody else does things. Um, for whatever reason, New Orleans is very personality-based. It's relational. We didn't have any funding to start our program, but we had relationships with the people we needed to have relationships with to get the, to, to, combine our resources and knowledge to get the program off the ground. And we had a little seed money from the downtown development district just to do a pilot. They gave us literally $15,000 for a pilot. That's how we started. So I also want to let people know that don't, just because there's no funding, do not let that discourage you. A lot of 
initiatives, as everyone knows, never happen because somebody's waiting for money first. In a way, I think the way we've done it is almost better because say someone had dropped a pot of money into our lap to start a program, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that we would have had the buy-in needed to get us to where we are now. The reason the New Orleans program, I think, is so special is because we really had to rely on each other to make the program happen. And we had to educate. We had to, we, we had to bring in people from all over the community to, to, to learn AOT from the grassroots up, right? And so they're not just coming in to do a job, right? It's like we have different positions, of course, in the AOT program. It's not like you can just, it's not like a relay race where one person hands the baton to the next person and they take their leg and hand the baton. We have to be working hand in glove all the time. The left hand always has to know what the right hand is doing. And so often when you have money to create a program, you put together the nice glossy informational folder documents, you know, you're, you, there's a lot of writing and so on that goes on, you write a grant or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And then you have to fill the positions. And it's like, well, filling the position, you know, you get people that are qualified to do their jobs, more than qualified, a lot of them to do their jobs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have the relationships in the community to make, right. move the program forward. So you get a lot of money and then everybody's sitting there and there's no clients in the program. <laughs> so, but and anyway, again, New Orleans is pretty unique that way, but I think getting to know the movers and shakers just, and if it's not a judge, maybe it's a legislator or maybe it's a council member, or maybe it's your mayor, or maybe a county commissioner, or, you know, it could be anybody that has authority and, and bandwidth and power, you know, in the community that can, you know, that you can partner with and, you know, and then just you work like double-sided tape, you stick to each other and you, you know, and off you go. But you don't need money. You don't need money to start a program. If you wait for the money, it might never start. Just start. Because to, to be honest, if you can only help one person, you've created a program. Right. Right. And, and from there, you use that one person to demonstrate to you know, yes. others about how you ch help change their life. And from there, you know, then you get, you know, you get money for two people. And from there, you know, if it goes well, you get money for three people. But it's better to start, I think, small so that you have the time to spend to do the program right. It's kind of like the small classroom scenario where, you know, smaller class sizes are better for the students because they get more attention, you know, that you have the time to spend with them and all of that. So I think, you know, you want to, I kind of think starting small and then expanding for us anyway, that's how it worked and it worked well. Um, but that's just my two cents. I mean, when you, you know. get a person, when you get a person to become healthier through the legal process of assisted outpatient treatment, that person then really naturally becomes an advocate for the program that he has been through. He becomes an example of a healthy, a person who had a chance at health and recovery because he had this kind of intervention and you just really grow another advocate basically for your yeah. own program. Yeah, I hope that a lot of our clients eventually advocate, but even if they don't and they just are able to live their lives and do whatever the things they want to do in their life, what we have to show for that is we're saving a lot of money because this person is now out of the revolving doors of expensive hospitalizations 
and the tragedies of homelessness in the criminal justice system. And that's what everybody wants. So, right. I mean, you can show that that works. Why wouldn't people want that? And the Treatment Advocacy Center is definitely the, the hub of it all. I mean, if you want to see amazing, heartwarming stories, right? Um, just, uh, yeah, look, look them up because there's hundreds of them, hundreds. I want to shift gears if we could and ask you, what do you do to stay energized and rejuvenated? I don't know that I do. I mean, I just keep working because I'm on a mission. Don't forget to fight the state and uh, the, 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 <laughs> the system against the injustices that have happened. But I, I do. I am getting better um, at taking care of my own mental health. And I mean, really, I have my dogs. Um, my dogs force me to um, have a more structured life. You know, I have to feed them twice a day. I have to take them for walks in beautiful um, sprawling green spaces with bayous running through and trees, oak trees everywhere. And it's just, I'm surrounded by so much beauty all the time. So I used to, in my younger days, I would go out and listen to music and that sort of thing. But, you know, now I find I'm more attracted to quiet. Um, my mind is so busy all the time. I just really, I want to be with the trees and the rivers and watching the dogs and, you know, um, so I have to, you know, I mean, I do that every day because I have to, and I'm glad that I have to, because I'm so distracted by work that, I mean, I, you know, when something is in front of me, I want to tackle it right then and there. And so I've learned to stop and it's okay. You know, the work will still be there when I get back and I can't right. save the world today. Um, so yeah, that's uh, basically, that's basically my mental health plan that and Ben and Jerry's is my Ben and Jerry's <laughs> my peer you have you have to read a lot of policy I do I mean you have to be continually reading policy because the knowledge you've gained since Katrina and throughout your whole fight with the state for that charity hospital and then on over to AOT and then taking over for our friend DJ Jaffe who passed away too early, unfortunately, taking over his mentalillnesspolicy.org. It's really a policy wonks heaven, right? So you have to be really reading, reading, reading. Yeah, no, I, you know, again, I've been busy with implementing AOT in New Orleans, so I haven't been able to do as much of the kind of reading that I used to do, but I will get back to it. Um, but, you know, I, I did spend an awful lot of time when I first started this work in the deep dive of the rabbit holes, you know, of the behavioral health system and the criminal justice system and Bebby's behavioral health just for simplicity services <laughs> reasons, not because I think behavioral health is a good term, is a good, is good terminology to describe this, um, what you know, they, they, they claim as a system, which it isn't. But yeah, no, I, 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 um, I'm a problem solver. And so, you know, I'm always questioning my own beliefs and my own thought, my own ideas, because I want to be right. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I, if I am not constantly questioning whether or not what I think is true, I might be wrong. And so mm -hmm. I, I have absolutely no fear of, you know, going out there and exploring, challenging my own views and, you know, and I will confront anybody. I don't care who they are. It could be the president. It could be anybody, you know, if I'm wrong, then explain to me why I'm wrong. Because if I'm not wrong, then why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? 
yeah, I do a lot of studying. And of course, DJ's books or his book is seminal or his, you know, masterpiece, Insane Consequences. I carry it around with me like a Bible uh, because it's just got everything in it that, you know, as far as citations, references, but all of problems and solutions are right there in one volume, one, you know, one piece of work. And so I highly recommend that book to anybody who hasn't read it yet. It's not a long book. It's just very well researched. And then of course, there's a lot of other books as well that I, that I, you know, refer to and DJ, you know, um, what an amazing, amazing man. I wish I, you know, I I wish I, 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 you know, I think I wish I had a 10th of the knowledge that he had about, Mm. um, systems and policy he was just above and beyond anybody that I know and he was right can I just tell you the first time that DJ and I talked to each other he said I'm disappointed in you he wrote me a note I'm disappointed in you you came out the gate like a strong advocate and now you're talking about stigma and (laughs) I was so shocked stigma is important (laughs) And I was completely wrong that, you know, I don't know if everyone knows what, you know, DJ Jaffe says about stigma, but when you're new to this, you are looking at perception in a certain way and stigma is, you know, I don't even say the word stigma now. Now I laugh, but I say discrimination. It's really legal legally enforced discrimination not stigma but Mm. the first thing he did was say oh god i'm so disappointed in you and i thought well what in the world and then he couldn't have been he could not have been more right right that sounds (laughs) yeah yeah he did not hold back his views or opinions or punch he would not he did not hold back any punches and the funniest thing is just underneath it all he's such a sweet sweet you know oh yeah Yeah, he personally was just a super loving and giving, unselfish person. But we need, you know, I'm, I was so happy when I saw that you had taken over that for him. I thought, what a perfect Mm -hmm. person, because you're beautiful and smart and well-spoken and kind, but you're also non-compromising in the ways that we need someone to not compromise on some of these issues that, you know, okay, 50 years of compromise has filled our gutters and our morgues and our prisons. And you have this, that same kind of uncompromising spirit that DJ had. I think I'm a little nicer than he was on, on, on social media. And so on. he was very, very straight. He was very pointed about everything that he said. I, I, I cushioned my comments, I think, more than he did. But ultimately, I, I think, yeah, I, I do try to hold the line. Because if we don't, who's going to? No, it's yeah. very important. So I want to ask you our signature question. I, I didn't send this to you ahead of time. So... You're, I'm really putting you on the spot, but you you may have you may have thought this through since healing is in the title of your nonprofit. So, what does healing mean to you? That's a great question. 
I think, uh, and, and even with the, the title of my organization, the name of my organization, you know, healing is um, anything to do with wounds, right? And the, the, the wounds of illness, the wounds of mental illness, healing in terms of bridging divides, um, repairing relationships. It just is, to me, that word just kind of, it's the bomb that needs to, that we need to apply to so many different areas of our lives, not just serious mental illness, but there's so much division and so much hatred and just so much, there's, you know, unnecessary conflict, I think. And in some of the discussions that we have with other advocates who are, you know, really, they're really hardcore kind of staunch proponents of a certain position and not willing to consider anything else, which doesn't lend to healing, it lends to fire and, you know, more divide and more conflict. And that's not helping anybody because really the only people that are suffering for all of the arguments that we have are the people who can't help themselves and they're, who are out, right. you know, they're out there on the streets. We see them more and more every day, you know, homeless encampments and so on are getting larger and just burgeoning homeless populations. Of course, and people that are involved in programs like we are, we see them every day in our lives. Family members are calling. I see them in systems. I see them in jails. Uh, you know, I see them everywhere. And I really, it, it, it just breaks my heart that they suffer so much. Mm. The stupidity of these, you know, petty arguments that we're having, you know, with people who refuse to budge from their, you know, their position simply because they want to win the argument. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't have to win every argument. And, you know, it's in this idea, I mean, I don't know, people have strong beliefs and some of their beliefs are misguided. They're, they're mythology. Right. Uh, whatever reason they can't seem to, my friend, Robin Birchfield, have to give a shout out to her who's, you know, and really an expert and been in new orleans as a as an rn she's a nurse with ems since 1993 went through the charity hospital system she's seen everything and she always says you know this it's like a cataract of the mind's eye you mm. know they can't can't see through the fog of their own cataract mm. to see what's really you know in front of their eyes and i'm telling policymakers all the time whose ears are being filled with narratives from people who really don't they're not boots on the ground you know they're not inundated with the day-to-day -day of crisis that we see the hospitalizations the jail the homelessness all of that and i'm telling policymakers see what's in front of you see see with your eyes stop believing what's in you know people are filling your head with look mm -hmm. all you have to do is open your eyes is it yeah. working? is it working and as DJ pointed out in his book, it's not that we're not spending money. We're spending piles of money. Right. There's all mm -hmm. kinds of money now through the ARPA funds, through the Bureau of Justice Assistance Grants. SAMHSA. SAMHSA. There's the- Billions um, at SAMHSA. Bill. So yeah, I mean, there is so much money out there right now, especially after COVID. Yeah, SAMHSA's got this new special grant that they're grants they're they're doling out to people that have applied for continuum of care assistance grants, housing assistance grants. But you know they want it for affordable housing. I don't have a problem with affordable housing. I I could I could use some myself. Mm -hmm. I, I I have a problem with 
using the population that is the most sick and the most suffering and standing and using them to promote your agenda to get yes. more money when you know that that money is never going to give to those people. Mm-hmm. Do not stand on the backs of the most vulnerable to promote your agenda to get yes. more money when that money is never going to be seen by the people that you say it's for because you don't even know, you don't know enough to know that, that you know, they're, you know, they, they believe they're not sick and they don't want help. So how are you going to help them? You refuse, you, you know, and these are the same people that are against compelling people to treatment through therapeutic and voluntary means. So oh, we can't do that. It's coercive. It's traumatic. You know, how coercive is it? I love Eric Smith, you know, our friend um, who lives with serious mental illness, who had been through the uh, assisted outpatient treatment program in San Antonio, who's now got his master's in social work and is moving on in his life in ways that, you know, even probably he could never have imagined right. um, doing so well, but I, his words, you know, and he brought this up at the AOT symposium last week when he, and he's saying, you know, the, the most coercive thing he's ever experienced wasn't hospitalization. It was not jail. It was the command voices in his own head that were controlling him. Yes. And causing him to make bad decisions in his life that is the most coercive thing that he's ever experienced. So, I mean, these advocates say, oh, well, we can't, you know, we can't compel people into treatment because it's coercive. You don't know what coercive is. Yeah. Right. Right. Having your brain hijacked by an illness is, Mm -hmm. um, I think my daughter said it best one day talking about her brother's act. She said, every good thing that has come to me in my life is because of my brain. I have a good brain, right? All this good stuff around me, my career, my husband, whatever, I attracted all of it because of my brain. And you really have to, you know, consider what a disadvantage it is when people are suffering a serious and chronic and progressive brain psychiatric brain disorder because if you can't rescue their brain they really don't have a shot at health or or meaningful you know a meaningful life a life that they want and that they're choosing while they're healthy enough to choose it yeah no thank you for joining laura and i but thank you for doing what you're doing and and devoting your life to care about people you don't have to care about. Yeah, no, I do. Or serious mental illness can strike anybody, anytime. We know it mostly happens for late teens, early people in their late teens and early twenties, but we do know there's late onset of people who have psychotic breaks and early. And I can tell you that I am terrified that, I might have a psychotic break because if I do, I know what happens. I'm going to end up homeless, incarcerated, or in that, in the never ending cycle of acute psychiatric hospital stays that are, it is forced and it is traumatic if you don't get help. Yeah. And, or dead. Yeah. Or dead. And that's, what's going to happen to me. If I, right. I know people who are mental health professionals who can't help their own kids 
or their own parents. Right. Even though they know they have all the connections. I know psychiatrists who can't help their own kids. That's right. And we know you and I both know millionaires. Yeah. Multi, multi, multi-millionaires who are not able to save their own child from this disaster because of the laws that we have. No, you can't have enough money to offset this problem. Right. And Tony, I see you. And I mean, you know, I know how hard your struggle has been and it shouldn't have to be that hard. You know, we know what to do. There are solutions. It's just, we need to scale up and fund and research this disease because it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's only getting worse. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, I'm working on an advanced direct psychiatric directive. And it's going to say, if I lose my mind, you will put me in forced treatment and you will bring my sanity back. And it will be overseen by a psychiatrist and attorney of my choosing, <laughs> um, you know, and do not let me out until you make me. <laughs> I, you know, on that note, I have already, even though I've, I've been blessed to not reach, you know, totally in unconscious, I, I have a medical power of attorney. My, my sister, who's a psych nurse, is my medical power of attorney. And if, if it's ever determined by a treatment team that I am not making the best decisions for my mental health, physical health, whatever, um, she, she takes over. It's there. Yeah. yeah. I think everybody should have that. Yeah, everybody, I agree. If you don't have a mental illness. You should have that. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. You can become incompetent or incapacitated by an illness that's not a psychiatric disorder. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can have a stroke and there you go. But I admire you so much. I admire your fight. I feel like we're sisters in the way, you know, my mom would say, oh, she's my little nonconformist. Every time I got in trouble for sticking up for someone who who didn't deserve what they were being handed. And it's really important. And I Mm. honestly, I hope your NOLA program sets a standard and that people will, you know, take hold of what you've implemented and how you've done it and really bring that forward to um, so many more communities because every, every state needs it. Every state. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. The feeling is mutual and you have my contact information if anyone wants to reach out. Yeah. Feel free to, to share that. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Janet. I love you guys. Have a great rest of your week. And um, I guess we will see you on social media. See you soon.